Well, good morning, and uh, glad to see you. And if you're visiting, I want to say a special welcome. Uh, I know Jake already has. That was Jake Patton, assistant pastor, is leading us in worship. And my name is Brian Haybig. I'm another one of the pastors here at Downtown Prez. So glad you're here. And um, if you are visiting and don't know your way around or something is unfamiliar or you have a question, please let us know. We'd love to answer whatever question you have. But glad you're here. We, uh, we are looking this summer at a section of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it's a, a section of a few chapters, and it's the night where Jesus is going to be arrested later that night, taken into custody, and then he's going to be crucified the next day. So really, you just get all these things that are nearest and dearest to him that he just pours out. So this summer, we've tried to slow down, really marinate in these chapters So we're going to be in John chapter 16 this morning, beginning in verse 16, if you want to turn there, um, or if you just want to look in the bulletin, that's where I'm, same text I'm preaching from, John 16, beginning in verse 16. Something we've been trying to remind ourselves as, as we've gone through this is that it's really, it's easy in the Bible in general, but even specifically since we're thinking about this particular gospel, the gospel of John, when you're listening to Jesus talk and he says, you this or you that, it's just really easy to, to think, okay, he's talking primarily to me. And we, anytime we come together and we open God's Word, we're trying to think about uh, what, what is he saying? Like, how, how do I connect the dots from these words to who I am and my life and our community as a church, our city? But we've been trying to say primarily when he says you, the, the, the people who are sitting or standing in front of him are the 11 apostles. And I'm saying 11 instead of 12 because at this point, Judas Iscariot has betrayed him. He's left. He's going to return with forces and soldiers and all that. But, uh, so he's talking to these 11 apostles. And these names really are famous even with folks that are not Christians just because their names are on buildings and hospitals and churches and ministries and streets. St. Matthew, St. John, St. Peter, St. Saint, Thomas. And, uh, you know, it's like even in Greenville, there's a, uh, I can think of one church on Cleveland Street named after one of these men, St. Matthew. I think there's a couple of St. Peter churches in Greenville. If you go down to the low country, especially Charleston, there's St. names everywhere. And, uh, just, and, and really, that's, that's all over the world. I, I want to pose this question to you, and in some ways, I want to look at the passage th- through this question. And the question is, what is a saint? Now, in some Christian traditions, a saint is someone who has done over and above the, the ordinary Christian life, kind of a, a meritorious higher tier of Christian. But if you look in the Old Testament, that's where the term saints first shows up. And in the Old Testament, for instance, it's used in the Psalms just to talk about normal, the normal people of God. They're saints. People, normal people, husbands, wives, single people farmers, townspeople. You go to the New, New Testament, and, uh, and the same thing happens. Like when the Apostle Paul will be writing a, a church, a local church, he'll address the saints there. And he's not talking about the, the special upper-level Christians there. He's just talking about normal Christians who call them saints. So back to the question, what is a saint? Which is just another way of asking, what is a Christian? And I know that when I've been asked that before, and I've also seen this happen when, I have, when I've asked other people, our minds tend to run, when we answer that question, to, to telling what saints do or what Christians do. 
I mean, I, I, when, when I was a campus minister, I remember seeing this. If I'd ask someone, what is a Christian? And almost always the answer that came back to me was they would start telling me things that Christians do. It's someone who uh, follows Jesus. It's someone who reads the Bible. It's someone who prays. It's a, but that's the answer to what are things that Christians do. The question is, what is a saint? And I think this passage powerfully gets at the answer. So I want I want to look at this passage through through that question. Let's see if we can come to an answer. John chapter sixteen, beginning in verse sixteen. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, "What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father." So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name... He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we think about the psalmist asking you to dig out ears for him so he could hear. And we could pray that every day. But we pray that this morning with the psalmist, that whatever is stuffing up our ears and obstructing us hearing you, whether that's cynicism or sadness or fatigue or unbelief, 
or whatever, we ask that you would dig out ears for us that we might hear you and your word would grab our heart of hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My second year of college, I was um, an RA, a resident assistant in a freshman dorm. So all the people that were doing that got back to school early before all the students got back, and we had a week of training and orientation for, to learn how to, how to do this, learn how to be resident assistants. And they had different people from the university talk to us about different aspects of the school. Because sometimes you're kind of the front line of when people come to you with their problems. But one person who spoke to us that week was, uh, was a guy that I think was sort of the, the, the head medical person on the, on the university campus. And this is fall of 1986, and he's talking to us about this thing that's just sort of hitting the news that really none of us know much about called AIDS. Okay, 30 years ago. Now, for so many of you, you've grown up in a world where that's just always been here. You've heard about it. Uh, and even if you didn't grow up with it, it's just it's been in the world so long that you just it doesn't have much shock to it. But to, to just hear about this thing when we knew a good bit less about it for the first time, it kind of blew everybody's minds. We were in this big auditorium on campus, and he just starts telling us these stark realities about what we know so far about this thing called AIDS. And, uh, of course, on a college campus, this is relevant because of the means of transmission. And so, uh, in the course of saying that, he said, and I really vividly remember him saying this almost word for word, ladies and gentlemen, AIDS is going to do more to transform sexual behavior than 2,000 years of Christianity has. Now, 30 years out, how does that look? And, and believe me, I'm not asking that flippantly, and I'm, I'm not being at all lighthearted about it. I'm just saying, 30 years out, that sounds pretty hollow. That's not what happened. Uh, another 80s example, right around that same time, Reagan era, uh, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, and the Just Say No campaign about drug use. And this is back when... It's fun to talk about the 80s sometimes, even though these are sad examples, but we'll walk down memory lane. But, uh, you know, the commercials that show the hot skillet and the egg hits it, you know, this is your brain, you know, this is your brain on drugs, got it, real stark. But big campaign about, look, we need to, you know, educate people, tell them about the realities of drug use, what it does to you physically and mentally and socially and financially and all that, and just tell people and just say no. And, you know, what seemed to drive that is give people good information and they'll change, right? 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 And here's the thing. It's not like the takeaway should be, well, it doesn't matter if we put good information out there because nobody's going to change. But it's just to say, if, if the assumption is, just tell people the facts and they'll act correctly on the facts. History is just a slam dunk that that's not true. And here's the thing. All you'd have to have to note that that's true is just the history of God's people. Take AIDS and drug use and all that, uh, take that out of the equation. Just look in the Bible at the history of God's people. The history of God's people are people who have privileged access and privileged information and then don't act on it or act like they've never heard it. What is a saint? I mean, can I, 
Because what I'm trying to push on is not answering that question in terms of what I'm going to do, what we're going to do. What is a saint? Because the history of the saints is not to act on what we know. So let's look at this. And um, I just want to think in terms in this passage, as far as the main points, of just the main, the main characters. So I want to think about Jesus and then think about the apostles. And we could say for our purposes, because of the question, the saints that are there with him as he's saying this. And then God. And just so you'll know that I'm still orthodox, I do believe Jesus is fully God, but just in his humanity first, Jesus, and then the apostles, the saints, but then God. Let's look at this. First about Jesus. You know, it starts off, and it's very repetitive. By the way, when I was reading this, and like three or four times it says, why are you saying this? You're saying this. Why are you saying this? That's not great writing. It's a very inefficient little batch of verses. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like an eyewitness account, just for what, for what that's worth. But what does Jesus say? He says, a little while, and you won't see me. And then a little while, and you will see me. Now, this is just part and parcel with something that he's been saying all through his ministry, but more and more as you get to this point, and that is that I am about to be taken from you. And really, that's like at a human level and a divine level. Ultimately, I'm going to go back to my father, and he says that. But even right now, like maybe in a few minutes, a few hours, I'm going to be taken from you. I'll be arrested. I'll be taken into custody. You won't be there, and I'll get to that in a second. And then I'm going to go through something that is so confusing and tragic and horrible. You're going to be full of sorrow. So in a little while, you're not going to see me. And then, even though you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to rise from the dead. So in a little while then, you will see me, and your sorrow is going to turn to joy. And so they discuss that. And again, he's been saying this stuff a lot. And the more so that he gets to this point, I came from God, I'm leaving, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to go to the Father. Look in verse 28, kind of get more windows into these things that he keeps, uh, keeps saying. Verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Why does Jesus keep saying these things over and over? Now, some of them haven't happened yet. Like the crucifixion hasn't happened. The resurrection hasn't happened. He hasn't gone to the Father. But it's pretty clear, I came from God. He's... He's physically right there with him, and he's been saying this. Why does he keep repeating that? And I, I think for lots of reasons, but let's, let's think about two. One is this. I, the more I learn about a weakness of mine that I'm trying to work on, communication, the people that know the most about good communication, especially communication in groups or in something that is being led by somebody, is that when you think that you're saying something just to death, and repeating it to death, and that you're just over-communicating and everybody's tired of hearing it, when you reach that point, maybe you're starting to communicate. And you know, some of you have heard that, some of you who like lead teams of people, that like if you, if you think you're saying it to death, maybe then you're hitting not over-communication, but communication. Jesus modeled that. That there are things, especially in the Gospel of John, that he keeps saying over and over and over. And, you know, that's worth noting 
Because why would he do that? There are these main things we've got to know. Is Christianity primarily about a political position? Is following Christ about a particular parenting methodology? Is Christianity primarily about an educational methodology or a particular model of interacting with culture? What is the absolute heart and core of following Christ? What must you know? He came from God. He lived and He died. He rose. And He returned to the Father. And Jesus keeps saying those things even before they've happened. But there's also this, and I think this is easy to lose sight of for us because, well, at least if you've been around church and you've done this kind of thing for a while, it's easy to lose sight of. A couple of years ago, uh, our family got to, to see a performance at the Peace Center, and it was um, different parts of the Greenville Youth Orchestra performing on stage. But at one point, a violinist, a high school violinist from Greenville, came out and, and backed by the youth orchestra, front and center stage, Peace Center played. And I'm telling you, she was incredible. She got through, and I turned to Dana and said, I don't know that I've ever been more proud to live here. That was incredible. And found out that in, for her training, she gets on a bus every weekend, drives to New York, or rides to New York, is trained, and then rides back every weekend, at least as of that performance. And I remember thinking, man, that would be, what, that is incredibly sacrificial, you know? That would be incredibly disruptive for your own life as a student, for family life to do that over and over and over Here's the thing that's so easy to lose sight of. The ultimate cosmic disruption is that when God the Father and God the Son had been together from all eternity, perfect bliss, perfect connection, that God the Father sent God the Son to earth to take on humanity... Not to stop being God, but to take on actual physical humanity. And what did he benefit? What was the benefit for him personally to do that? Zero. But he does that and retains his humanity. For 30 something years on earth and now in heaven. That is the great disruption. Why did God do that? Because nothing else would remedy the things that we're talking about. In a little while, I'm going to go, and you won't see me. And then in a little while, you will see me. And then I'm going to go to the Father. All right, what about the, what about the apostles? What about the saints? There's some interesting back and forth here in verse 30, starting in verse 30. Because mostly it's been Jesus talking, but now you hear the disciples. They just said, okay, finally, you're not using a parable or a figure of speech. Now you're just putting it out there. And then verse 30, they say this, Now we know <clears throat> that you know all things, and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And talk about a poignant question. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Now? Because the men that he's talking to, they were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee when this incredible storm just drops on them. 
and experienced fishermen, men who are experienced on the sea, were terrified. And they saw Jesus simply say, stop it. And the weather calmed. And the Sea of Galilee calmed. And it terrified them because they knew. He said that and it happened. And that was completely supernatural. It terrified them. The men he's talking to were there when Jesus went to his friend's tomb, Lazarus, and said, days after he's died, he didn't die five minutes ago, the body has started to smell. Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. And the town celebrates. Three of the men who were there saw it when they went up on a mountain, and Jesus begins to emit the divine light of who he is as God. He's transfigured. And they saw Moses, and they saw Elijah, and they heard the voice of God the Father say, this is my son, listen to him. They had seen and heard all those things. And now they're saying, you know what? Now we know that you really did come from God. And Jesus says, do you now believe? And here's the painful follow-up. Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. And just so you'll know this, all through the gospel of John, Jesus has been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And now he says, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When what? When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. And, and I've mentioned this before, but when we think about, all right, who, who denied Jesus? Now, not the betrayal, Judas Iscariot, but like, who denied Jesus? We usually think about Peter. Peter says, I'll never leave you. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me tonight. No, I'll die for you. You're going to deny me tonight. And then he did. But the Gospels are clear. Jesus said, all of you are going to leave me. And they all said, no, we won't. And then they all did. Mark Chapter 14, just a few verses. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Then several verses later, And they all left him and fled. They all left him and ran. Uh, you might say that, humanly speaking, the men who set the DNA of the Holy Catholic Church were the men who had the most privileged access and the most privileged information, and then with all that, they still ran. There was a, a New Testament scholar at Cambridge, early to mid-20th century, named C.H. Dodd. Here's what he said. It's part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. I'm going to read that one more time. It's part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them, and this they could never forget. Now, that's a good bridge to the last character, God, Um, particularly God the Father and God the Son. 
Think about what Jesus says here in light of what he's just predicted about God the Father. Let me me read some verses. Verse 23. In that day, this day that when these things happen, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You go down to verse 27. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, can I juxtapose a verse that we just read with these verses just so so we hear them together? Let me juxtapose these. You will be scattered and you will leave me alone. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You will be scattered and you will leave me alone. The Father himself loves you. And then here's how Jesus speaks about himself. This is is right after he said, you're all going to leave me. Verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Some of you have heard me quote the comedian that I love, Brian Regan, and he's got this this bit about um, road signs that say, danger blasting zone. And he asked, the, you know, he asked the question, why is that sign there? Like, shouldn't that sign say, road closed? What am I supposed to do when I read, you know, danger blasting zone? It ought to read, don't drive here. Okay, Jesus just said, you're all going to leave me. After three years of investing everything in you, you're, and, and even with me telling you ahead of time, you're all going to leave me. And then the next breath is, so take heart. I've overcome the world. Like, shouldn't that say, you're all going to leave me, shame on you. You're all going to leave me, I rebuke you. You're all going to leave me, take heart, and have peace. Because I've overcome the world. Now, this is where you get to the answer. And I heard somebody put it this way once. This is not original, but I think it's so well framed to state it negatively and then positively. A saint is not someone who has done great things for God. A saint is someone for whom God has done great things. A saint is someone for whom God has done great things. Now, he is saying this first and foremost to the apostles, but because you think about how they're going to need to hear that when they scatter, and he's crucified, and he's put in a tomb, and even after he's talked about risen from the dead, risen from the dead, they don't understand it. They don't understand how this works. How they're going to need, not just after the resurrection, but for the rest of their lives. I am with you. Even when you blew it, and even now when you blow it, the Father loves you. He'll answer your prayers. Take heart. I want you to have my peace. I've overcome the world. What what would you say, really deep down inside of you, is the answer to failure? 
like moral failure. Because, well, I'll start with people who are Christians. Every person who's been a Christian for any length of time in this room will know this experience where you've had a good season. You've had a good run. And what that can look like is, you know what? I I feel like I'm really starting to understand God's Word better. I feel like I'm actually starting to pray more. Understanding how to do that, kind of get my legs under me. I, I feel like I'm actually starting to change in some ways. The kind of employee I am, kind of um, family member I am. And then you just bloody your nose one day. What do you do with it? When you, fa- when you fail, is the answer, well, I'm not going to fail anymore. Is the answer to failing, not failing? Or how about this? How about darling sins? And if you, the darling sins is just one way of describing. It's that thing where when we have times of confession of sin and we have silent confession and we think about what's the sin that I need to confess, it's the one that always runs to the front of your mind first. And typically it's the one where we have talked to God and it might be in your knees, on your knees in your room or in your car driving around and saying, God, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I know I've told you that, but I'm serious I'm serious this time. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then you do it again. What is the answer? Now to really not do it again? That would be great. But the answer to failure is to turn to God. The answer to being like the apostles... People with privileged information and privileged access to God who fail. The answer is not to say, well, Jesus, I won't fail again. The answer is to turn to him and say, have mercy on me again. And here's the thing. Somebody might hear me saying, does it not matter whether we obey or not? Does it not matter if we live holy lives? It totally matters. But you know where holiness and changed lives come from? God's mercy. And experiencing it over and over and over. How do you become patient? You watch God over years and decades be patient with you. If you're angry as crud at everybody, how do you learn to really be a merciful person? You go back to God over and over and you watch Him be merciful to you over and over and over. And it changes us. Yet we need to obey. But a saint is someone who is able, with their failures, and man, I'm not trying to be corny, but when you fail, whatever that looks like for you, addiction, pornography, adultery, substance abuse, lying, misappropriation of funds, loving your house more than you love God, loving bourbon more than you love God, language, selfishness, whatever. When we fail, I mean, couldn't, Matthew and Peter and John put their arm around us and say, boy, have I got good news for you. Because we lived with him for three years and we sat there and we stood there and he said, you're all going to leave. And we, all of us, I was there, all of us said, no, we won't. And yes, we did. And he already had the plan in place. That mercy is for people like us. That's the only thing that changed us. And he really rose from the dead and we really knew this really is true. It really is true. Let me end with this. I, um, I've shared this story before, but I just, I just got to tell it again. And it's, just, it's not original. I heard this from John MacArthur. You may have heard his name. He's been a 
pastor, writer, teacher, preacher in California for many, many years. Great ministry. But, uh, but John MacArthur, a few years ago, he got a phone call from a mutual friend that knew uh, his high school football coach. And John MacArthur was a Christian in high school, and when he was playing for this football coach, he tried to share the gospel with him and this coach. He loved John MacArthur, but he wasn't interested, and, and MacArthur said he, you know, he's a single guy living his life. He liked the women, and just, he's like, you know, hey, John, love it for you, man, but it's not where I'm at. But he loved John MacArthur. So this is 50 years later, and he gets this phone call that that coach is still alive, but he's dying. He's in the hospital, and his friend says, do you think you could get by there to see him? So MacArthur goes by. He goes in the room, and he finds out from the nurse that he hasn't sat up or opened his eyes in three days. So MacArthur goes over, and he, uh, he grabbed his hand and said, hey, coach, it's Johnny Mack. That's what, that's what he went by in high school. It's Johnny Mack. And his coach's eyes opened. And he looked up at him, and uh, John MacArthur so I, I only got to, I met MacArthur one time, and he's really straightforward. This sounds like him. He said, Coach, you are the thief on the cross. This is the absolute 11th hour. You need to turn to Jesus and embrace him now. And he did. He did. But, of course, in those moments, you can wonder... Does he just love me, and he's maybe just praying this prayer, saying these things because he wants me to, to feel okay about it? And so I'm going to, like, you know, calm his mind about it. It's not really what I mean, but I'm just going to say it. But anyway, MacArthur went back a few days later, and uh, there had been this improvement. And this coach was sitting up in bed, and he had a clipboard. And MacArthur talks about, my whole life I knew him, he had a clipboard. I go to the hospital 50 years later, he's still got a clipboard. And he's got this page on the clipboard, and it has the letters of the alphabet. So he would point to the letters, because he, he had it in a trach, and he couldn't talk. So he'd point to the letters to, to spell the words he wanted to say. MacArthur comes in, he, he motions him over, can't talk, and he spells out, What can I do for our Lord Jesus? And th- this was so insightful. MacArthur said to him, Coach, this isn't really the time where you're going to do something for him. This is the time where you need to let the Lord do for you. And you know what? That sounds easy. And I have found it to be hard. Here's here's what you need to do right now. Now, this could be for someone who doesn't yet know Christ. This could be for the Christian of 50 years. Here's what you need to do right now. You need to understand that your great contribution is the sin. And he's going to take care of everything else. And you need to come with open hands and say, thank you for sending a Savior like Jesus for someone like me. Have mercy on me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for hearing my prayers. Thank you for caring about my joy. Please help me. Saints are people for whom God has done great things. And if you're, I talked to, let me end with this. I talked to someone, not a church member, not a visitor, but I talked to somebody here yesterday that stopped by the church who said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm dying of cancer. And I asked him, what are you doing to prepare for that? And he said, well, what would you do if you were dying of cancer? I said, well, I mean, I think I'd want to know that I'm right with God. Do you know that? And he said, no, I've, I've done too much. 
I've done too much that's bad. And I'm trying to learn how not to do God's talking for him. So got up my phone, looked up the Bible, showed him 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. And I asked him, do you think he means some or all? He kind of said, I, I, don't, I don't know what he did with that. But all a saint does is receive the finished work of Christ. If you're not a saint today, you can become one. All you have to contribute is the sin. And turn to him and say, would you do the rest? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's, it is our glory that our God can make saints out of people like us. So we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that if anyone is here who is so discouraged and so ashamed, who feels like, I can't ever be clean, would you show him or her that they can be clean? that they can be saints. Father, for those who are saints, turn us back to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.